Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Heart Failure Beat. This is Dr. Michael Beasley. On this month's episode, our featured conversation involves an analysis of the heart transplant allocation system. And we welcome two fantastic guests, Drs. Shelley Hall and Jeff Tutberg. Following that segment, we close, as always, with From Failure to Function, which is hosted by my uber-talented co-host, Dr. Priyumapathy. This month, Priya is going to be looking at two trials, the ENACT HF trial and the Tracer HF trial, which take a look at naturesis-based diuresis, as well as the use of copper chelation in the management of heart failure. But first, let's get to heart failure rounds. This month on heart failure rounds, I'd like to take a look at a few papers that I think bring the importance of patient-centered care to the forefront. The first paper is entitled, Holistic Approach to Drug Therapy in a Patient with Heart Failure. This paper was published in Heart in August of 2023. First author on the paper is Paul Forsyth from the Department of Pharmacy at the NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde in Glasgow, United Kingdom. As discussed in this paper, most patients that develop heart failure first get diagnosed with the disease somewhere in their 70s. At that time, a lot of these patients have multiple comorbidities and often have even five or more different comorbid diagnoses. Due to having so many different health problems, polypharmacy is a large issue with the majority of these patients. And as we know, the treatment of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in itself requires the use of a lot of different medications. So the question that the authors raise in this paper is that For patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and other comorbidities, where is that individualized care or treatment approach, and how can that be patient-centered? Well, they think that this can be done through a few different methods, and they look at the use of shared decision-making, how guideline-directed medical therapies should be either initiated and or sequenced. They look at the drug-related considerations uh, of the medications that we use for heart failure as well as other drugs that may have some type of adverse effects with those drugs. They just look at the effects of polypharmacy in general, and as well as the importance of patient adherence to prescribed therapies. So in the first section, looking at the importance of shared decision-making, it's stated that shared decision-making is a very important process because it involves patients in their own care. It allows patients to have a chance to discuss what are their goals of care, And once we as clinicians understand what their goals of care are, it allows us to tailor those medical therapies to meet those goals. When we're trying to meet the goals of our patients, it's more likely to boost adherence. Patients are more likely to want to take the drugs that we prescribe for them. And it makes patients and families feel more empowered about the care that they're receiving. They're able to ask questions about why they're being prescribed different drugs, and they have a better understanding about why they're on the medical treatments that they're receiving. And finally, if you are having a shared decision-making conversation with the patient, it's just really important to always remember to use patient-centered language or language that would be easily interpretable to that patient. The next section looks at the importance of initiation and sequencing of guideline-directed medical therapies. And the authors of this paper state that it's really important to consider patient characteristics when deciding how to start the different forms of guideline-directed medical therapy and in which order you would want to start them, how you would want to uptitrate them. And knowing that the order in which we really get these started is a little bit less important than the fact that we end up getting them on all four classes of guideline-directed medical therapy that are currently class one recommendations. So, you know, as I'm speaking of beta blockers, renin-angiotensin system inhibitors, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, as well as SGLT2 inhibitors. 
They talk about the importance of realizing if patients have chronic kidney disease, they have issues with hyperkalemia, possibly issues with hypotension, low heart rate, or fluid retention, that those types of patient characteristics can help direct you towards which drugs should be started first and how to better uptitrate those drugs in a given order. Again, being more mindful of your patient in front of you. The third section that they look at is in regard to drug-specific considerations, which I thought as a non-pharmacist, this was something that I typically, to be completely honest, don't think about as much, but it was really uh, insightful. It talked about how there's pharmacokinetic differences when there's differences in body structure of patients and talked about how some of these drugs that we prescribe for heart failure may be lipophilic and metabolized through the liver, whereas others are hydrophilic and metabolized through the kidneys. So examples of drugs that are more lipophilic and, and hepatically metabolized include carvitolol, spironolactone, and aplerinone. Whereas those that are more hydrophilic and metabolized through the kidneys include enalapril and lisinopril. Other things that the authors made mention of is to be very mindful of the half-lives of the medications that we're prescribing, as well as the side effect profiles of the different drugs. They then went on to speak about polypharmacy and knowing that our patients are going to be having some form of polypharmacy if we have them on all the classes of drugs that we want them to be on if they have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Therefore, it's more important to think, is the polypharmacy that this patient is experiencing appropriate or inappropriate? And they go on to explain that inappropriate polypharmacy means that you're prescribing drugs that really are not meeting the indications by which you want those drugs to be used for. Other things they talked about would be that there's certain classes of drugs that would just be completely inappropriate in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. A list was provided, and some of the drugs on the list are as follows. Disopyramide, flecainide, dronaterone, and sotalol. Sotalol, for me, has a special place in my heart. A number of my EP colleagues will always seem to prescribe sotalol in my HEFREF patients, and I know it, it causes lots of trouble in, in these people because there are negative inotropes and it can cause people to be more low output. Other drugs that were included in this list included doxazosin, prazosin, and minoxidil as those increase renin-angiotensin system activation. Diltiazem and verapamil, I think we all are pretty uh, familiar with as being negative inotropes, and they also increase peripheral edema. Beta-2 agonists that are potentially used in the treatment of uh, bronchospastic diseases like COPD can increase heart rate, which we know is also problematic in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Another medicine that I didn't wasn't quite on my radar as being necessarily problematic is uh, pregabalin, or which goes under the brand name of Lyrica. This increases water and sodium retention. NSAIDs also increase sodium and water retention, as we know, and also can increase the systemic vascular resistance, which is problematic in heart failure. And more broadly, classes of drugs that we should really try to stay away from in heart failure, some diabetes medicines, which include saxagliptin, cetagliptin, rosiglitazone, and piaglitazone, as well as the tricyclic antidepressants, which are prorhythmic type drugs. And then lastly, talking about the importance of medication adherence, the authors went on to talk about the importance of developing a very strong patient-clinician relationship. And as the patient trusts their clinician and feels that they have a very strong relationship with their clinician, they're more likely to be adherent to the therapies that are prescribed. Also, if patients have an increased health literacy and that they've been able to receive some form of education from the healthcare team about the importance of those drugs that they're taking, they're more likely to be adherent to them. If you can also be mindful about the drug regime factors that go into the medications, meaning the dosing schedules, trying to uh, prescribe medications that maybe need to be taken less frequently, so once-a-day drugs when possible versus twice-a-day drugs, and drugs that do not affect the patient's other comorbidities, such as uh, patients that have mood disorders, patients that might be more frail, patients that might have some issues with uh, gastrointestinal disease. Those things could play a role in having some intolerance to some of the guideline-directed medical therapies we might be interested in using. And then lastly, having a good understanding of the socioeconomic environment which the patient finds himself and how that could affect their ability to obtain the medicines that they need and, and take them. 
The second paper that I'd like to look at was called or is called Heart Failure Knowledge, Symptom Perception, and Symptom Management in Patients with Heart Failure. This was published in the Journal of Cardiovascular Nursing in the July-August issue of 2023. First author is Jia Rong Wu, uh, who's a PhD, as well as Deborah Moser, who's also a PhD uh, from the Department of Nursing at the University of Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, United States of America. So this was a study that they conducted at their institution, and they looked at 185 patients that had heart failure. And what they were trying to do is explore the relationships between these variety of factors, which included knowledge about heart failure, a patient's ability to monitor their symptoms, their ability to recognize if they were having symptoms of heart failure, and then lastly, their ability to respond to any symptoms that were recognized. And why were they interested in this? Well, they felt that being able to perceive that one is having symptoms related to heart failure is a key component in self-care for patients with heart failure. And that in order to react to having symptoms, you need to be able to recognize that they're happening and know what to look for and, and be able to monitor yourself for those types of things. And they were interested to know was, would just having knowledge of heart failure in and in itself kind of lead you in that cascade of recognizing and responding to symptoms? Or was there more that needed to be done in order to get you to that final point where a patient could recognize and respond to the symptoms that they were having to care for themselves if they were having a worsening heart failure? Heart failure knowledge was measured using uh, something called the Dutch Heart Failure Knowledge Scale. Symptom monitoring, symptom recognition, and symptom response were measured using the self-care of heart failure index. In the end, uh, what they found was that heart failure knowledge did not immediately translate into a patient's ability to respond to the symptoms of having worsening heart failure. What they did find was that having increased heart failure knowledge did result in a patient's ability to monitor for symptoms. But monitoring for symptoms in itself, but that was as far as it would go. Heart, heart failure knowledge in itself would not lead them to be able to respond to symptoms or recognize symptoms. However, if you would teach a patient how to monitor for symptoms, at that point, then they would be able to recognize symptoms and respond to symptoms. The bottom line here was that when patients with heart failure monitor their symptoms, they're more likely to recognize that they're having symptoms of worsening heart failure and therefore are more quickly to respond and take the appropriate actions to respond to those symptoms. So when we're performing some form of patient education, it's not enough just to teach our patients about heart failure. We need to teach them actually how to monitor their symptoms, and then that will help them recognize and respond to those symptoms if they do experience worsening heart failure. And finally, the third paper that I'd like to talk about this month is called Towards Improved Patient-Centered Communication and High-Stakes Heart Failure Decisions, the Best-Case, Worst-Case Framework. This was published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure, which is the Journal of the Heart Failure Society of America, and was published in the June 2023 issue. First author on this paper was Dr. Sarah Chusey from the Department of Medicine, Cardiovascular Medicine at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois, United States of America. So the authors of this paper felt that this was an important concept to explore because there's been such a expansion in the number of surgical and interventional therapies that are available for patients with heart failure and advanced heart failure. Patients with pretty significant burden of heart failure are being asked to make difficult high-stakes decisions regarding the complex treatment options that they are being offered. And sometimes they need to make these decisions in a relatively quick and short amount of time, and it's a difficult thing to do. So the authors recommended shared decision-making approach, but we're aware that shared decision-making possibly is not without its own weaknesses if it's not done appropriately. One thing that was pointed out is that we bring our own personal bias and our personal experiences into shared decision-making conversations. And sometimes that can guide patients one way or the other and not necessarily allow them to make the decisions for themselves. 
Sometimes we're not very good at finding the gray and we make things too black or white, if you will, saying, you know, either you're going to get this treatment and then you're going to live or you're not going to do the treatment and then you're going to die. And things not, are not always just that clear. And there's a lot of nuance there that sometimes we miss when we try to have these conversations. And lastly, you know, if we're able to do more personalized communication with patients, that helps them better understand their clinical condition and inform them very well about the different options that they have in front of them, that they're more likely to be able to make a choice that is in line with, you know, what is going to be the best for them and what's in line with their goals of care and wishes. So what is this best case, worst case framework? Well, this is something that was borrowed from the surgical community. And basically, it has also been uh, used uh, apparently in the nephrology community when trying to discuss the need to start hemodialysis for patients with end-stage renal disease. So what it does is it enhances a prognostic understanding for that patient. It helps clarify the presentation of choices, and it's involved when discussing high-risk interventions or procedures. It's been shown through different types of scholarly investigations that it improves the shared decision-making approach in life-limiting surgical diseases, uh, and it helps to contextualize that medical decision into a larger personal framework. In the article, there were some resources that were cited where you could find more about this best-case, worst-case framework. There was a toolkit that was available at www.hipxchange.org slash bcwc. And then also, if you go on YouTube and search for the Patient Preferences Project, they have a number of videos uh, posted about the best case, worst case framework. In general, the way that it works is that the clinician is to describe in great detail what is the best case outcome when possibly offering a treatment, what is the worst case outcome when offering that treatment, and then what is the most likely outcome when offering uh, that treatment. So, and this should be depicted, they encourage you to write this out on a piece of paper where you have the best case on one end of the spectrum worst case on the other end of the spectrum, and most likely they're somewhere in the middle. And that would be as if somebody would be receiving the intervention. You also need to go through the alternative, which would be what would be the best case outcome should somebody decline an intervention or a procedure? What is the worst case outcome if somebody would decline that intervention or procedure? And what is the most likely outcome if they would decline that intervention or procedure? And again, Write this out on some form of paper or diagram where these things can be looked at then at a later time by the patient and family. It's recommended to try to portray these possible outcomes with examples to be a little bit more narrative so patients can kind of see themselves in these situations, to tailor that communication to the patient's level of, med of medical literacy, um, their emotional readiness to receive that information, and their communication preferences. And again, this is to be done in creating some form of a, of a document or a graphic aid that can then be left with the patient and family so that as you leave them, they have some time to review what you told them. Obviously, as we're going through these conversations, sometimes it's difficult for patients to retain all of that information. So for them to be able to go back and look at it afterwards, and then as you come back to revisit them at some point later on, you're able to pick up the conversation from where you left off and the patient's able to make a more informed decision about either pursuing you know, a recommended or possible intervention or procedure versus not. And in the paper authored by Dr. Chusey and colleagues, they talked about how this would possibly apply to left ventricular assist device implantation, for example. Well, thank you so much for listening to Heart Failure Rounds. Uh, I hope you enjoyed my coverage of those papers this week and really trying to highlight the importance of patient-centered care, which I think is a, you know, obviously a, a, an incredibly important part of what we do as heart failure physicians, trying to really make sure that we are taking care of our patients the way they want us to take care of them and providing the treatment that they want and deserve. Please stay tuned because our month's featured conversation is coming up next.
Welcome, everybody, to this month's featured conversation. We have two fantastic guests here that are going to talk about an issue that's on the minds of a lot of people that work in the field of transplant cardiology. As most of us know, in the year 2018, the UNOS heart allocation system underwent a revision. And since that time, we've been looking back and trying to think if the consequences or the outcomes that have been seen in the past five years were you know, what was intended at that time and are things improved as we had hoped that they would have been? And do we need to continue this process moving forward and maybe making some uh, further adjustments to the system? So to talk about that, we have two wonderful guests. I'm going to take this opportunity to introduce the first of our guests and then uh, Priya will jump in and, and introduce our second guest and get the interview started. So first, uh, I'd like to introduce and welcome Dr. Jeff Tootberg from Stanford. Dr. Tootberg is a professor of medicine at Stanford and has served as the section chief of heart failure, cardiac transplantation, and mechanical circulatory support since the year 2017. Uh, also of note, uh, Dr. Tootberg was the president of the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation, ISHLT, in the year 2018 when the allocation change took place. Welcome, Jeff. And it's my great pleasure to introduce the indefatigable, amazing, indomitable <laughs> Shelley Hall, Chief of Transplant Cardiology and Mechanical Support at the Baylor University Medical Center. Shelley has worn many hats and uh, with great aplomb. She's been practicing cardiology and transplantation for over 25 years. She's the past chair of the Heart UNOS Committee, the incoming chancellor-elect for UNOS Region 4, has been active in UNOS for over a decade. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for being here with us, guys. And so I'll start off with, we have a pretty diverse listener audience for this podcast, and I'm going to start off with a really, really general question to kind of set the stage for the listeners, for all the diverse listeners we have. So why create an allocation system? What is the purpose of an allocation system? Gentlemen first. <laughs> Thank you, Shelley. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the original concept was if we have a bunch of people that are waiting for transplant and organs become available, how do we most equitably and justly distribute those organs across not only geographies, but across patients and centers and levels of illness? And so that's how the initial allocation systems were created. And they're all different for all the different solid organs based upon the variety of different factors for all of the solid organs. And what got us to where we decided to make a change in 2018, and I can hand it over to Shelly because she was intimately involved in a lot of the, the decisions that went into sort of the new allocation system, was that the heart allocation system really only had three statuses. There was a 1A, which was the sickest patients, a 1B, and then a 2, which were typically patients that were at home. With the advent of mechanical circulatory support, uh, in the sort of early 2000s, more and more people were getting mechanical circulatory support. And one of the things that was the most common reason why you were 1A at the highest status on the heart transplant list was that you had a mechanical device and then you had a complication. But the definitions sort of surrounding those and the criteria surrounding those were pretty soft. And so what ended up happening at most places is that patients who had devices and complications ended up being at the top of the list. And because they, despite the fact that they had complications, they could be in the hospital with those complications for long periods of time, the, the wait list at the top of 1A became longer and longer and longer and it became more and more of a logjam at 1A. And so basically, if you had a blood type O or a big A, and even some of the other blood types and body sizes, the only way to get transplanted was to first get a VAD, and then you would do well on a VAD for a long time, and then you would get a complication, and then you have to be hospitalized for that complication for a while, and then you would get a transplant. And so people recognized that that wasn't sort of sustainable moving forward. And so there was an impetus to sort of change how we think about allocating organs, and that's kind of where Shelley's work behind the scenes led to our current allocation system. Yeah, I think the one thing I would add to that is, you know, at the beginnings of transplant, there was just a handful of centers and they all talked to each other and they didn't know much about transport. And so your donor had to be close to a transplant hospital. And there wasn't really a need. 
But as the expertise grew and the number of centers grew, you had to start to organize and, and as Jeff said, fair distribution of a limited resource. And the one thing that is still consistent today is we have many more on the wait list than we have donors available. So you have to figure out a way to order the line and you can consider the top status as the quote unquote VIP pass. And then the middle cat is the general admission. But ultimately, you have to have some rules in, in place as to who deserves for whatever reasons we decide to be in the VIP or the higher statuses and who is stable enough or can wait or whatnot in the middle lanes. And with each iteration, I mean, even the 1A, 1B was a, an improvement on a prior, which was just one and two. And it was hospitalized or not hospitalized. And that was all there was back then. And so each time we create an allocation system and we grade or break down these buckets into smaller buckets to spread out the disparities of illness, you have new side effects or repercussions of whatever methodologies you've chosen to create those buckets. Yeah. So going along with that, Dr. Hall, you know, that leads us into the the next question I was hoping to ask is that given the uh, limitations that Dr. Tutberg really talked about so well there with the prior system, the thoughts that went into planning the current system that we're practicing in now, I guess were some of the, I guess, consequences or outcomes that we're seeing, you know, in regards to, you know, perhaps the increased use of temporary mechanical circulatory support, maybe the reduction in the use of durable LVADs. Were those some of the things that, you know, people were anticipating uh, at the time that this new allocation system was being thought of, or, or have things turned out in a way that wasn't anticipated? Yeah, I would say that some of the things we expected to happen happened, and those were some really good things. I think the one thing that we kept deceiving ourselves is that our human nature would change. And there were some of us who said, hold on here, back then nobody would put a swan in just to make a patient a 1A and keep them on a swan for months and months. And yet that's what we started complaining about as patients were living in the ICU on swans. So history had already demonstrated that our transplant community knows how to find ways to move patients up the list. One of the ramifications of the current system is all the controversy around temporary mechanical support, as you mentioned. And when we developed all the, the, these criteria, it was based upon the data of how what was happening in the prior allocation. And that's all you can do. You can't model future human behavior, right? So what we knew is that if you were on a temporary mechanical support on the wait list, you had a high likelihood of dying before you got an organ. And we knew that because anybody who was a VAD candidate was stabilized on temporary mechanical support, and then they went and got a durable VAD. So it was only the people who were not candidates for durable VAD that were stuck in the wait list at 1A, hoping and praying they would live long enough on that temporary device to get an organ because everything was in 1A. And so we knew that ECMO was the highest mortality, temporary mechanical support was the next, and then inotrope with swans was the third. Data clearly showed that. And even in the allocation system, we put that they had to demonstrate a contraindication to an LVAD, because that's how we behaved before. But what happened is people didn't, they saw this VIP pass to put a temporary device in, stabilize a patient, and then go, hey, I don't have to wait six months anymore on this device. I can get a heart in two, four, six weeks. Why do I want to go to an LVAD? Why can't I just go direct to transplant? PASCO, do not collect 200. So that's what the transplant community has done. They have elected to no longer stabilize, go to a durable VAD, and then eventually go to transplant. And by doing that as a transplant community, we have now created an environment where the durable LVADs who still exist are now behind 80% of the transplants, which are going to the status one through three. And there's a concern that you can't get an L a transplant from an LVAD anymore, which further fuels this behavior to not go to an LVAD because you won't get them a heart. So we've created the problem that we were afraid of in the first place by our behaviors. 
I think that's really interesting because I think we now call this the era of the triple scar, you know, where you have your impella on one side, your prior ICD site, and then your sternotomy. And so I think, you know, past behaviors may predict future, <laughs> future behaviors. So we've sort of found ourselves in the reason that you folks and many others thought about ways to intelligently revise the system. Now that we're about five years out, what are, do you think, some of the best things and some of the worst things that came out of this revision in the allocation system in 2018? Well, I mean, I, I think that um, when you look at sort of the reasons or the, the goals for the change in the allocation system, other than the sort of to remediate the logjam from the prior system, you know, the goal was to reduce weightless mortality, right? So it wasn't to improve long-term survival. And you can argue back and forth about sort of, is that the right metric? But I think if an organization that's sort of managing a waitlist, you don't want people dying on the waitlist because if, if they do, then you're not maybe not allocating organs the way you should. That was accomplished so that that is improved. And that hasn't come at the cost of any impact on long-term mortality. Um, and there was some concern early on from some very early studies that that may be the case, but that hasn't really, that concern hasn't really been borne out. So you can argue that, hey, you know, the waitlist mortality has gone down and the people, their time on the waitlist has also gone down. So that's probably a good thing too. So you go faster and you can say, hey, you know, you don't have to get a VAD. I'm a bigger proponent of durable mechanical circulatory support as there, there is in the country. But there's an upfront mortality with that, that when you think about sort of the mortality of getting somebody with advanced heart failure to a transplant wasn't really ever kind of baked into the cake when you when you thought about it. So would you rather have two sternotomies before your transplant or one sternotomy before your transplant? I'd rather have one as big of a proponent for mechanical support as I am. So I think I think that's good, too. But to Shelley's point, I think it's, you know, you change you change the allocation, you change incentives, and then people's behavior changes. And I think that we've kind of gone from this point of, I think it, everybody sort of originally sort of looked at this and said, hey, you know, maybe while I'm stabilizing my patient on temporary mechanical circulatory support, they'll get transplanted. And I think it'll, early on that happened a lot. And then people were like, oh, well, then <laughs> maybe I can keep doing that. And I think that's kind of maybe where we got ourselves in the problems. And I think there was also a little bit of after you've been on temporary mechanical support, the time frame was two weeks, then you had to have a reason why you couldn't go to mechanical circulatory support. And I think people, people's reasons were maybe a little bit soft, but I think everybody was a little bit forgiving and trying to get them there. And in places like California, where hearts are more, more available, we almost never needed to go there because we can usually get our patients transplanted to status one or status two within that one or two week period, depending on whether you're on ECMO or some sort of temporary mechanical circulatory support. Whereas other parts of the country, I think those, those sort of exceptions to not go into durable mechanical support kind of just kept going and going and going and, and, and renewed. And now we sort of end up where we are now. So I think we're in a better place, honestly, than, than we were. And I think if people honestly look at it, I think they would agree that we're in a better place. But I think we now need to sort of tweak it some more based upon the incentives and based upon how things have changed. Yeah, I would add to that some of the negative aspects is there is this growing concern that LVAD patients can't get access to transplant and they have to get a complication which could theoretically put them out of transplant candidacy. That's a big concern in the community. And the other is that we tried really hard to put parameters in place to minimize gaming. I mean, let's use the word out there. It's used regularly. And we put shock criteria. Now, there's lots of weaknesses to that, but it was all we had. There was nothing else. And, you know, one of the, what I feel is a mistake we made is we used the same criteria for inotropes and for temporary support. So many people are like, I'm not even going to try inotropes. I'm just going to put a balloon pump in and skip inotropes and go right to that because that gets me a two, whereas the drips get me a three. And that was not the intention. The intention was to continue to practice the way we practice, which is you medically stabilize. If that fails, you go to temporary mechanical. And then if that fails, you go to durable mechanical or transplant. And so what's happened is people to get that way have exploded the exception request process. And the regional review boards are averaging 15 exception requests a day for hearts, just hearts, over 450 a month. And that was one of the goals was to reduce that for the new allocation. And that failed miserably. And it was, it was people saying, my blood pressure's 95 instead of 88. But 
So therefore I, but I still need the balloon pump and whatnot. And, and at the beginning, the review boards are just us. They're just volunteer transplant um, people. Um, we're like, well, I, I don't know, you know, and they certainly didn't want to be responsible for saying no. And in the old days, your own region reviewed each other. So you had to look at your colleagues in your area that you were theoretically, I mean, you're competing with each other for that donor and, and be able to look them in the eye and show why you thought your patient deserved that exception. In Region 4 in Texas, we were really tough on each other to make sure they earned that, that because there's just, there's only so many people and only so many organs. And now they took it away. They anonymized it. So you're not facing anybody and you're not reviewing your own region. So, you know, there's this incentive. Well, if I approve them, it's probably not going to impact me because it's somewhere else and we probably won't overlap. So those, I think, were errors that we made or certainly the consequences of the new didn't work out. And then the final, obviously, we wanted broader sharing. That's the intent of the, the system, but that comes at a cost. And transplant centers are spending much more money to do the same transplant. They're having to fly further. They're having to pay, you know, two OPO fees, jet fuel, sending teams, having their teams away from the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So transplant costs are skyrocketing for transplant centers. So that would be a negative repercussion. I'd like to circle back a little bit to some of the things that the both of you have just mentioned and kind of take this back in regard to human nature, as Dr. Hall, you mentioned towards the beginning as well, is that you know, I think at least the way I feel, and I'm sure everybody, we all feel this way, is that we're sometimes stuck in an ethical dilemma where we're, you know, trying to do what's best for our patient and do everything we can to help get that person through whatever, you know, situation they're in and to, to have a good outcome. But, you know, we do understand that there's the, obviously there's that role for social justice as well and making sure that we are abiding by good faith with the rest of our community and, and doing things that are that the best for the uh, transplant community as a whole. Given that we have this ethical conflict, if you will, is it something really that any allocation system is ever really going to be able to address that we have these issues now, as you just mentioned, where people are trying to have their patients listed by status two by exception because they don't quite maybe meet the hemodynamic criteria. But you know, that's just because what's available to maybe those uh, cardiologists that help their patient, even though it may be not what the system as a whole was hoping to have transpire. I just want to get your thoughts on that and, and see, is this something you think that, you know, like I said, any system would be able to really take into account and overcome? Or is it just something as, as humans and people that are really trying to do the best for the people we take care of that, you know, we're always going to try to be creative to do what we can to help our patients? Yeah, I think that's our eternal dilemma in our profession is we want to be good stewards for the donor and the donor family. And we have our patient staring us in the face and we want to be the best doctor we can be for them. No allocation system is going to fix everything. It tries to create a set of rules to keep the line in order. And no matter what, there are going to be clinical scenarios that are unique, that aren't addressed in whatever rules are created, and there will be unique situations that physicians will be pleading on, on behalf of that patient to try and move the patient up the list. And not everybody will survive on the wait list as long as we have a shortage of, of donors. I think the key is to doing the best we can is one, that it's an open and fair process and the transplant community is actively involved. I can't tell you how many colleagues I've run into that say, you know, the UNOS did this or the, the rules did this. And I'm like, we created those rules. Lots of your fellow transplant docs spending hours and hours and hours of volunteer time on UNOS committees, on regional review boards, on public comment, on national meetings, have all been part of developing these rules to the best that we can on the data we have. And so that's number one, is, is that you know being involved. And number two is getting it as continuous and independent as you can related to clinical factors. You know, the concern right now is we're relating it to a device which let's face it, in the heart space, that rapidly is evolving. Unlike the other organs, they don't have that. But we have all kinds of rapid changes in technology that can allow us to support patients for longer. And how do you figure that out in an allocation system? So trying to find data elements that are independent of treatment choice 
that can give you the best indications for patient mortality risk is going to be the best we can do for creating an allocation system, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's You can't legislate human nature. It sort of is what it is. And you just have to, allocations are an iterative process and you have to kind of realign incentives. It's tough, but I think that, you know, we try and, as Shelley said, it's sort of the communities doing this to themselves. It's unfair for the community to look to UNOS or to look to Shelley on, on the UNOS committee and say, hey, save us from ourselves. <laughs> we, have to, we, have to, we have to sort of take responsibility and, and, and move forward. And so, and I, and I think people get that and, and we'll, we'll make the changes that we need to get us there, I think, in, in the future. But I think there's, to put it in perspective, there's still a lot of hearts out there that aren't being used. So you can't look at the allocation system and say, you know, damn you allocation system, you're disadvantaging my patients. So, you know, and, and, you know, maybe you can, but I, I think that there's, there's still a lot we need to learn. And I think there's still a lot of organs that are being discarded unnecessarily out there. So I, I think we can't get too wrapped up in the allocation system as being the, the boogeyman uh, for all of our problems. I'm just going to piggyback on that a little bit. I think they're all awesome points. So just a couple of things. So as we were talking about, there's this idea of efficiency and utilization, what's out there and how much are we using. As a nod to the future, what do you think the role of the transplant community is in the allocation process, number one? Number two, do you think it's going to be redesigned in some time frame that you don't have to disclose to us, but maybe you can just predict? What do you see as the next frontier? Do you see the use of DCD or DBD organs? And that is an avenue for really taking a limited resource and not necessarily making it exponentially bigger, but making it a little bit more accessible where, you know, the bottlenecks are there, there's a better way to list people and stratify them based on, on their risk, the pool is a little bit bigger. So that, that would be the third point. So I, I guess I'll touch on the future, you know, stuff that's coming up since I'm involved in all that. I, one of the challenges is it takes too long. You need several years of data to analyze, and it takes a while to collect that data. So here we are at five years, starting to understand our three-year outcomes. And then you gather that data, and you try and analyze that, and that takes a year. And then you use that data, and then you come up with a new solution, and you put that out for public comment. That takes a year. If the public doesn't like it, then you have to go through another round of public comment with whatever new version you come out, there's another year. So you can see if you look through the different iterations, it's about 10 years between each major allocation change. So we've got to figure a way to speed that up. And, and that means faster, more efficient data analytics and faster and more efficient programming. You certainly don't want to take the transplant community's voice out or the public comment, that's integral to the transparency and openness of our national program. The second is that we are looking at an interim patch, so to speak, to deal with the status two glut. And that's going to go out for public comment in August. And it's going to basically try and push us back towards prior behavior, which is that you try medical therapy first and only when that fails do you go to temporary mechanical support? So that'll come out for public comment in August. Meanwhile, we're already in the process of developing the future iteration, which is continuous distribution. Lungs went live with that in April. Hearts are the last because we just had a change. So we're the last. So hopefully we're going to learn a lot from the lung community's experience. But we've started to develop our attributes, which are the different criteria that will have weights and scores and things to create the future heart allocation and trying to get out of device specific, but more towards the criteria that you mentioned. But if everything goes perfectly, like we get it just right and the public loves it and everything, it would be the end of 2026 to early 2027 before that would go live for hearts. So we've got to deal with some of these interim problems in some way. But it's always based upon data. It can't be, we just think it should be this way. And, and that takes time. And that's one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. And I'd maybe wrap up and say that, you know, we're it's sort of in a little bit of a renaissance now in heart transplantation. For the longest time, volumes are really flat. And a combination of things like hepatitis C positive hearts, the opioid epidemic, 
now DCD, I think there's a lot of things and hopefully with more understanding of who we can get away with transplanting and who we can to have matching, better matching donors to recipients so we can take advantage of some of the hearts that are unused out there. The volumes are actually going up. And so I think we're, we're making progress where we hadn't for, I don't know, a couple of decades in terms of getting volume of transplants higher and getting people to the therapy that they need. And I think that over time, as mechanical circulatory support itself gets better, maybe those patients shouldn't be prioritized. And that's something we can we can talk about uh, in, in the future, because if they're doing really, really well in VAD, why should they get prioritized over somebody who is sick in the hospital and not just by some sort of technical definition of filling pressures and cardiac index, but really needs to be transplanted and can't really get mechanical circulatory support? So we'll see. You mentioned, too, with that the volume increase. The one, my big fear is that we will continue to chase the shooting star. And so as we increase our donor utilization, we're going to increase our wait list, who we list. And we're going to take more and more chances with our candidates so that we'll never close that gap. And, you know, and that's another behavior that we can't model. But we know what happens. If you're transplanting a lot and you're having good outcomes, you start to be a little bit more lax in those recipient criterias and build your wait list up versus if something happens, you shrink it back down. So I worry that the more donors we use, the more we will put on the list. And there are some some crazy things going out on, you know, right now about what we should be doing with transplant, that everybody has a right to it and lots of criteria should be dropped. And we're talking about scarce resource with a very expensive lifespan of, of management and not a lot of room for error. And there may be new rules coming that dictate other behaviors of ours that we haven't even envisioned yet. So the future is just that. It's the future. And as much as we think we can predict it, we've proven over and over again that we get some of it right, but not all of it. So out here in sunny California, I was trying to end the podcast on a very happy note. (laughs) Shelly brings us crashing back down to earth with the fallibilities of human nature. And going along with that, I just think for uh, Pri and I, we both want to thank you both for taking the time to join us here on the podcast today and for all the work that you each have done in this space over the, the years and the leadership that you've offered to the community. You know, we're, we're grateful for all of, all of that effort and everything that you've offered to the transplant community over the years. Dr. Tutberg, Dr. Hall, any last parting thoughts or comments that you would like to leave uh, with our listenership as we uh, move to sign off for today? No, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it was a, gr- a great overview. And again, thank you for, for joining us. It's always great uh, chatting and particularly great chatting with Shelley. And I think that the general heart failure community shouldn't look at this sort of small controversy as any way impacting how they refer their patients to us, right? So who gets sent to us, when they get sent to us, should they send them to us? You know, these sorts of, these are kind of almost inside baseball sorts of things in terms of the transplant world. So I don't want people to think that there's some sort of major controversy in the world of transplant. I think we're still trying to offer that therapy to a broader population that it's appropriate for as possible. And I also say, stop to say that everyone likes to come up to Shelly and complain about the UNOS allocation system. If you're at a meeting and you see Shelly, just thank her because like she said, there's hours and hours and hours of work that went on behind the scenes to, to get to where we are, which is progress. And so we should all, the community should be thanking Shelly and her colleagues on the, these UNOS committees to make this happen. Oh, now that's, see, he's just so suave and, and you know, and I'm just like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> I, I, I think the big thing is that, you know, when I got started with UNOS over a decade ago, it was deer in the headlight. Everything was moving slow. I'm like, oh my God, because as physicians, we're used to immediate um, decisions and immediate results. And policy process doesn't work that way, especially if we're going to be fair, open, and honest. And so what I would say to the community is be involved in the process. The public comment is open for everybody to review these proposals, to look at them. Patients, physicians, OPOs, coordinators, everybody should be looking at and giving opinions because that's how we refine them and determine where things are going to go. And the more people that are involved, the more ideas that come out and the better the policy can be with each round of revision. So get involved in some way. Those are great messages. Thank you so much, guys, both Shelly and Jeff. Thank you so much for your time and your service. And Shelly, thank you again. And I can't imagine a better steward to kind of get us to shoot for the stars with our feet on the ground. And I think you're a great person to kind of navigate us forward through this. So for those of you out there who want to get involved, get involved. 
especially with Shelly Hall at the meeting after you say thank you. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm just kidding around. But thank you so much, guys. It was such a pleasure chatting with you both. Thanks again. Thank, thank you. you. Welcome to From Failure to Function. A couple of quick ideas to share from meetings from the last month and a half or so. The first is from the Heart Failure Association of the ESC in Prague that was held at the end of May. Lots of interesting studies that were shared, one of which was the thought-provoking ENACT HF study. This was a prospective multicenter, open-label, non-randomized trial that enrolled 401 patients in a truly international study with 29 centers across Europe, North Africa, Latin America, Middle East, and South Asia. In each center, the standard of care for diuretics was compared with a standardized naturesis-based diuretic protocol in two sequential phases of recruitment. Standard of care diuretics were used in phase one, and the standardized naturesis-based protocol was followed in phase two. The primary endpoint was naturesis after one day. Following the standardized protocol led to an increase in naturesis of 64% after one day. Naturesis after one day was 174 millimoles in the standard of care group compared with 282 millimoles in the protocol group with a p-value of less than 0.001. A predefined subgroup analysis revealed that patients had a benefit independent of age, sex, kidney function, and the ventricular ejection fraction. The protocol was superior in both naturesis and diuresis on day two, with both parameters being significantly higher in the group following the diuretic protocol. No difference, however, was seen in weight loss and congestion score after two days. An interesting and thought-provoking study. Hopefully we will see more data to test these ideas. Another intriguing study was the Tracer HF trial, which looked at using an oral copper chelator and its association with the reduction in NT-proBNP. The study enrolled 190 participants from 27 sites in North America and China and randomized them into four groups receiving placebo or the copper-chelated triantine hydrochloride, with each group having approximately 50 participants. Average age of the study was 57.3 years, and 90% of the study population were Asian. Part of this is based on the fact that this study started prior to the COVID pandemic, and hence, over the course of the pandemic, the trial enrollment focused mostly on patients in China. The primary study endpoint was the effect of triantine hydrochloride versus placebo on proportional change in NT-proBNP from baseline to 12B. In a mixed effect model for repeated measures, a significant reduction was noted in NT-proBNP at 4 and 8 weeks in the 300 milligram triantine hydrochloride study arm. Other secondary endpoints saw favorable trends for triantine hydrochloride compared with placebo in LV reverse remodeling, six-minute walk distance, and KCCQ scores, especially among the 300 milligram dose cohort. Copper and iron concentrations were not significantly different across treatment arms, and blood pressure and heart rate were not significantly affected by the addition of triantine hydrochloride. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.